Let us open our Bibles to John chapter 19. You have heard the accounts read to you from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We are going to take John's account. Where necessary or valuable, we'll refer to the others, but we'll trust what we have in John 19. John 19 has 42 verses, the first 16 of the second trial before Pilate. There was a trial back there in chapter 18. This is the second one. In between was Herod's trial. Verses 17 through 27 are the crucifixion itself. And then verses 28 through 42, the last 15 verses of John 19 are about his burial. And then we'll get to chapter 20. It'll be his resurrection. And we have given this month of November to focus our affection and attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought us to John 19. We are going to give him five Lord's suppers in a row. We would have given him the first Sunday of November. We would have given him the first Sunday of December. And we'll stick three more in there and do it weekly for five weeks to show him our affection that way. He chose the Lord's Supper as the way that we remember his death till he comes. It's a very simple ordinance. It's a matter of faith. And we're going to give him five Sundays in a row. John chapter 19. John had a purpose, and that was to, for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, for the assurance of your salvation. Why did God plan and determine the trial? First of all, the arrest and the trial, the torture, the death, the burial of his son for the redemption of our transgressions that were under the law because we deserve to go to an infinite duration of infinite well, we couldn't absorb infinite punishment, but an infinite duration of finite punishment for our sins in the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. There is a lake of fire described in the Bible, and in that lake of fire are all liars and all murderers and all sorcerers and a whole list of other sins that we are guilty of. That's right. Yet we've been saved from that right. and are deemed righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus Christ. And not only righteous, His children as you had read from Hebrews chapter 2 very plainly. So we've been adopted. That's why he did it. God was pleased to bruise his son and deliver him up to monsters, I mean Jews and Romans, for you. What do you owe him for what he did? Your life. And it's not much, but it's all we can give. And we should give him our lives, a living sacrifice. And there's more to it than just faith. We want to have love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. We want to embrace him by faith and speak of him and have our hearts lifted up when we think of him and sing his praise with all of our might because we love him. We want to be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be like him. We want to be almost or altogether like Paul. Altogether like Paul, Agrippa was the almost guy, and we don't want to be like Agrippa. So here we are. We want to use every means at our disposal to love Jesus Christ more. Amen. We want to ask for the Holy Spirit, and we have asked. We want to use his word, and we are having more scripture read than most. We want to use music and singing to think of songs about him that lift up our hearts and our minds. We want to give him that adoration and love him like we should. And we should remember his love for us. It'll change your life. Right. 
It's because we forget it that it doesn't change our lives. We go out of here, and there's nothing else we're going to do that's important this week. Not in comparison to this. And there's no subject matter we're going to take up that's as important as this one. Lord bless us to that end. Let me read the first three verses of John 19. We are going to speedily, I will do my best to fulfill that word. In John 19, verses 1 through 11. But the first three verses. John 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. This is the reproach and mockery and torture of Jesus Christ's trial. Pilate ordered this, as he said in the Luke 23 reading, I will chastise him and release him. Pilate was hoping that if he abused him a little bit, the Jews' insatiable thirst for blood might be satisfied if he was bleeding enough, and they would let him go. Oh, no, no, no. Those Jews weren't going to let him go until he was dead because our Father in heaven wasn't going to let him go until he was dead. Make no mistake about it. Nothing happened there that wasn't under the complete government of God and according to his determinate counsel in eternity that Jesus Christ would both suffer and die. And so whenever you read about power in the matter, it's the power that Christ had to obey the power that his father had to order him to it. And it was a commandment, and he kept the commandment. Yet, these men were judged guilty in the sight of God. God can use a man's sin and still hold the man accountable for his sin. Sennacherib was used by God to be the chastening rod upon Israel. What happened to Sennacherib? 185,000 dead soldiers, and when he was worshiping Nisroch in the house of Nisroch, What happened? Two boys came in to love on him and suffocated him to death because he was guilty, though God had used his sin. Romans 9 would say, Therefore thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed... Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? I love this God. Just the way the Bible describes him. Just the way the Bible describes him. There's never been an evil event in the history of this world that God didn't have complete government and control and management over and had planned it from the beginning. And he got glory from it. And if we'll respond to every positive and negative event in our lives, he'll get glory from it anyway. But we'll then benefit from it. If we'll respond properly, because he brings those events to see how we'll respond. But let's get into this passage right here and not take more time in the way of introduction or general explanation. We already covered verse 1, and so I don't really want to repeat it. When Pilate told the Jews, I will chastise him, he meant this scourging in verse 1. Scourging is a very serious, terrible event. Many men have been scourged in the history of the world. Many thousands, maybe millions of men have been scourged or flogged in various ways by various forms of whips the Lord Jesus Christ was. And he was still, sometimes it kills a man. 
Scourging can kill you. Romans didn't have 40 stripes limit. And it could kill you. But Jesus is still alive. He's still going to be able to make his way to Golgotha. It's 650 yards from this judgment hall to Golgotha. We're going to get there in this chapter. Jesus wasn't strong enough to carry his own cross, so they got another person to do that for him. He did last another six hours on the cross before he laid down his life, before the two thieves died. Verse 2, And the soldiers platted a a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. So the soldiers of Pilate this time, not the soldiers of Herod, and not the servants of Caiaphas, the high priest, they're going to mock him for a while. They scourged him, so they ripped his back open with a scourge by the Romans, and now they're going to mock him for a while, and then Pilate's going to bring him out to the Jews and see if they might be satisfied to let him go, because Pilate's plan is to let him go, even though it's a pretty severe plan, because they wouldn't take his word for it, Pilate said, I find no fault in him at all. I've sent him to Herod. Herod can find no fault in him at all. Let me release him. It's the Passover. I'm supposed to release someone. Let me release Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, no. They wanted one that was guilty of sedition so they could slander one that wasn't guilty of sedition that he would die instead of the one guilty of sedition that should have died. Right. The soldiers planted a crown of thorns. The soldiers mocked Jesus by making him wear an evil, foolish crown made of thorns. A a very big issue here is the reproach of it. Remember the Bible. The Bible does not go into very much detail about the pain that Jesus Christ endured. It just doesn't do that if we're going to trust Scripture. Now, we know that the things he endured caused a great deal of pain, but we also know a lot of other men endured those same things Many thousands or millions were crucified by Romans during the time of their empire. But there's a a reproach aspect in here that I never want you to overlook. I want you to try to remember four levels, four kinds, four types of pain that Jesus Christ endured. There's the physical that most people focus on and forget the others to some degree. But there was second, a psychological aspect of being deserted by all of his friends, no one coming to his rescue, though he had healed thousands in the land of Israel, and being made fun of as a king when he was a king, being made fun of as the Son of God when he was the Son of God. That psychological, emotional, whatever you want to call it, I don't care about the word, that you use to describe that category. And we have categories because... There are many scriptures that don't fall in the physical, but fall in the psychological category. And they're in outlines. Then there's third. He had a spiritual warfare with the devil, who was coming after him to destroy him. And there's a fourth. The divine punishment that Jesus Christ suffered was God forsaking him. The fellowship that he'd had with his father throughout his life. Did you see the affection in John 10 that I read to you earlier? I know my father. My father knows me. My father loves me. My father gave me a commandment. Of course I'm going to keep my father's commandment. And my father loves me because I'm going to keep his commandment. Did you see all that? It It was gone here for a number of hours. The earth was darkened because it was gone. And he was crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember those four categories of suffering. And in verse 2, have you ever screamed or yelled a little 
or winced when you were combing your hair. And a tooth of your comb just struck your scalp a little hard. Or girls and women, when you're pulling a comb through your hair, it pulled a few hairs. Imagine a crown of thorns put on your head. And they put a pole in his hand. A rod. A reed. Which is, try to imagine a piece of bamboo. Strong, can grow to great lengths, cut to a length to look like a scepter, and they would take it out of his hand and beat him on the head. You say it doesn't say that here in John 19 too, because I just had Matthew and Mark read to you for what they did. Right. They put the crown of thorns on his head, and then they hit him on the head with that reed that was in his hand, and it would drive those thorns down into his scalp. Have you ever sunburned the top of your head? And then tried to comb your hair? I mean, trying to t the scalp is a sensitive part of your body. Nobody wants to admit it, but it is a sensitive part of your body. Maybe I can give you a different kind of a comb. But thorns in your head, pounded down, but it was the mockery. This is the kale, king of the Jews. You think you're a king? These people think you're a king? These people accuse you of saying that you're a king? What kind of a king are you? This is the only crown you get. Wait till the next time they see him. Those Roman soldiers, what kind of a crown will he have on his head? It'll be a crown like they've never seen or imagined. Thank you, Lord, for telling us that we know that. Scripture foretold that Jesus would be mocked, so they're making fun of him as being a king, and that is prophesied numerous times in the Bible. He endured mocking and ridicule from beginning to end of this trial. You and I, pathetic paupers that we are, are looking for corruptible crowns in this world, and Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns for us so that we might wear an incorruptible crown someday in heaven. Right. Think about crowns. You know how much effort we put into getting some kind, some form of a corruptible crown? It doesn't have to be an athletic endeavor. It can be any kind of an endeavor. And yet he wore a crown of thorns and was mocked for it and had it driven into his head so that we someday could be crowned with righteousness and everlasting life yes. in his presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Both metaphorical and literally, the soldiers did and will see King Jesus in great glory. Philistines once made sport with Samson, but he deserved it. These Romans made sport with Jesus and he didn't deserve it. And they put on him a purple robe. Herod had put a gorgeous robe on him. This is not Herod's robe. This is one that uh, Pilate's soldiers put on him. Mark said that it was red, scarlet, and it could be both. It depends on who's writing it. I don't care. We can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We can line them up phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and see that if a robe that was put on Jesus was half scarlet and half Purple, what would you call it? You know what would happen if I handed out 200 pieces of paper and had you write on it what you would call it if you saw a robe that was half scarlet and half red, uh, purple and you only had one color to choose from. You know what would happen. We'd have a whole collection of scarlets. We'd have a whole collection of purples. And anyway, I, showed you, I told you last week about Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4 when we see the revived Roman Empire in the form of the Roman Catholic Church there are two colors ascribed to her, and they are scarlet and purple. Right. 
because that's what the Romans wore, so we shouldn't be surprised. It doesn't matter one bit. He had put on him a purple robe because Job 19 says that. So do you know what that means? He had a purple robe put on him. And the robe was a mockery to make him try to look like a king, a fake king, because they were mocking him as king. And Matthew's the one that wrote about the reed that was given to him as a scepter. And you also heard read to you that they bowed their knee. They'd actually kneel down and mock him in their mockery, going to an extra length to genuflect like Roman Catholics before the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was king. Matthew and Mark wrote that they also hit his head. Verse 3, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! Notice the exclamation point. That exclamation point is not John's emphasis. That's the emphasis by the Roman soldiers as they mocked him with those words, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. So they were slapping him, punching him, hitting him. And the other Gospels that you had read to you this morning said they also spat on him. So a crown of thorns, a fake scepter, a robe, hitting him, mocking him, spitting on him, pounding the thorns down into his scalp. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Being made a mockery of as a king, and he happens to be king of kings. Which kings? All kings. King of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would God send him to do this? We've answered that already. For you and for me. John chapter 10. I came to lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep I have that are not of this Jewish fold. Them also I must bring. There'll be one fold. Jews and Gentiles combined. And one shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. And therefore my father loveth me. And we love you too Lord Jesus Christ. We love you too. Smote them with their hands. Ever look at a little baby's hand? Those men had hands given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, because the Bible says all things were made by him, and without him was anything made that was made, including those Roman hands. Those Roman hands did not play with a mouse during the day or a keyboard. Those Roman hands were manly, hard, gnarled hands, and they punched my Lord. Are you, going to help, are you going to help me make up for it? Amen. That's why we're doing what we're doing in the month of November. It's, it's that simple. I'm a very simple person, if you boil me down. Very simple. I just want to do more for him because of what they did to him. Verse 4. Let's go to the second section of this trial. Verses 4 through 7. I read to you. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Verses 4 through 7. Remember, the Jews are outside the judgment hall because they wouldn't want to defile themselves, these scrupulous, God-fearing, good people. These religious people wouldn't want to go into that judgment hall and put their feet 
on some commercial tile that was laid by a Gentile, that might defile them and they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. But if they're dripping in the blood of the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, no problem. That's the hypocrisy that sin will get everyone to. Sin is able to make you that hypocritical. Remember the example that I like to bring up, and I think I brought this up a week or two ago, is David, when he was confronted by Nathan about what should happen to a man that stole a lamb. Kill the man. Uh, David, for a lamb? Kill the man. That's what sin will do. Sin will corrupt you from the inside out and twist all your thinking. You know the best thing to do when you're in sin? Stop thinking altogether. Is this the sandwich you want me to eat? After I eat this sandwich, where should I go and what should I do? Don't think. Because sin corrupts all thinking. That's why it says in and out and in and out because the Jews were on the outside. Pilate was going to be on the inside. Pilate would bring, have Jesus inside. Pilate would bring him out as we're about to read. Verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them. Pilate had been inside the judgment hall with Jesus where he'd been scourged. Pilate presented Jesus in his abused condition now, in his perverse attempt to placate these beasts. Behold, I bring them forth to you. They had done their work in verses 1 through 3. I want to make the word of God as plain and simple to you as I possibly can. I hope you can see 1 and 3, Roman, I will chastise him and release him. This is Pilate and his men abusing and mocking and torturing the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 3. Now, Pilate is going to show Jesus in this condition. He's been beat up by Caiaphas and his men. He's been beat up by Herod and his men. And he's been beat up by Pilate and his men. And he's been scourged by Pilate. I'm going to bring him out now and show you what I've already done to him. I find no fault in this man. I've chastised him. I want to let him go. That's what we have in verses 4 through 7. Behold, I bring him forth to you. And so Pilate brought Jesus out of the judgment hall proper for the Jews to behold the prisoner. You know, Rome protected Paul. Do you remember the Bible? Have you read the Bible? Do you know the book of Acts? Do you know how many times that the Roman government protected Paul from even being scourged? Paul was a Roman citizen. Jesus was not even close to being a Roman citizen. Yet, Pilate knew he should defend the man because he was innocent. And that's why he tried so many times to let him go. But our Lord Jesus, did Paul ever appeal to Caesar to deliver himself from a beating? Or did he appeal to his Roman citizenship to avoid a beating? Yes, he did. Jesus didn't because he wasn't a citizen. And would Jesus if he had been a citizen? No, 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 no. You're forgetting the whole lesson here. You're forgetting the whole history. Jesus, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. And so he laid his life down for us. He willingly was led as a lamb. A lamb. What are the fighting weapons of a lamb? There are none. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, silent. He opened not his mouth. Our brother read to us from 1 Peter chapter 2. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. He didn't threaten. He just did what they told him to do. He had power to lay his life down. He had power to take it up again. You and I don't have that power. I'd have done a few things in there if I'd have had Jesus' power. I'd have done a few things if I didn't have Jesus' power. 
I'd rather go down fighting. But Jesus had a purpose. And boy, he did it perfectly. Did you hear those passages that were read to you, like Hebrews chapter 5? That he learned suffering. He learned suffering to be the captain of our salvation and to be perfect by learning about suffering in obeying the will of God. So he is a perfect high priest to be able to relate to us every time we have to suffer when we obey the will of God. Verse 5, Then came forth Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. The effect of Caiaphas' abuse of him, Herod's abuse, and Pilate's would have been obvious. He'd have been bleeding all over. He has a purple robe on, so it would have covered his scourged back. But blood would have been dripping on the floor. Blood was dripping from his scalp being ripped by that crown of thorns and beat on the head by the reed. He had been punched and slapped and abused, but there were no broken bones. So though we think of him being blindfolded and hit in the face, his nose was not broken. It couldn't be broken. Why? Because not a bone of him shall be broken. And John's going to get to that lesson before we get out of this chapter. John is very particular. John is very particular about some things. Now, he didn't give us the word praetorium, but he's going to give us a few other words in just a few verses because he's particular. And you're going to see his particularity as we get close to the end of the chapter, and he's going to say so. I was there as an eyewitness, and I want you to know that these details I saw myself in the fulfillment of Scripture. But we are at verse 5. Then came forth Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. You know, he was once held as an infant in the temple at his dedication, and Simeon there said to his mother, this is a sign that is going to be spoken of against And it's going to make a division among the people about what happens to this baby as he grows up into the man, Christ Jesus, the Messiah. Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. Notice the exclamation point in your Bibles in verse 5. Behold the man. And you may have read these words in some other sense, but this is the sense. Look what I've done to him. Let me read it to you this way. Behold the man are the words with an exclamation point. Behold, look at what I have already done to a man that is innocent of any civil crime. Behold, look at what I have already done to enhance my interrogation of this Jesus. Behold, look at the pain he has already suffered by my men for any wrong that you think he's done. Behold, look at what your high priest's officers and Herod's men of war have done to him. Behold, look how I have humiliated and ruined his reputation to the people forever by subjecting this, him to this humiliation, mockery, reproach, and punishment. Behold, look how humbly and submissively he has received the correction I gave him. Behold, is it not enough? What more could you possibly want for a matter of religion? That's what is meant by the words, behold the man. It wasn't Pilate trying to preach some gospel message. Behold. The man Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and man. No, it was, look at what I've done to him. I said I would chastise him and release him. I find no fault in this man. And look what you've pushed me to do to him. Let's let him go. Your your high priest men have had their way with him. Herod's had his way with him. And I've had my way. 
<clears throat> Let's let him go. And that's what verse 5 means. That's the sense of verse 5. Verse 6, when the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, behold the man, look what I've done to him. What's the response by the Jews? When the chief priests therefore, therefore, as Pilate exposed the bloodied, battered, scourged, mocked Jesus Christ, the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now this is a little contest going on right here between the Jews and Pilate. The chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, their rabid hatred of the Son of God. It is hard to imagine that the most educated people on earth when it came to religion, the Jews, could be this hateful against a perfectly innocent man that met every one of the criteria necessary to be the Messiah of God for the nation, including timed prophecies. He never did anything to harm anyone. He healed, he fed, he stopped storms, he delivered from devil possession, and they're rabid for his blood. But not just his blood, they want his life. They want him crucified on a Roman cross. Let me remind you that this was all determined by the, problem, by the purpose of God. Right. And they're going to be held completely responsible for it in the end. That's right. Crucify him. What beasts these men were. There should have been great guilt and pity for the pain caused to the best of all men. He hadn't done anything except expose their hypocrisy. No. Is that all it was? He exposed their hypocrisy. Didn't Jesus tell us that? Haven't we learned that in the Gospel of John? Before I came, they had a cloak for their sins. But I've exposed them. I've shown their sins to the nation. So they hate me. And they're going to hate you because the ministry that I've given you, apostles, is to go out and reprove the world. Tell them they're wrong. Crucify him. They wanted him dead. Their devilish cries fulfilled scriptures and his own prophecies of his form of death by demanding the Romans to put him to death. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. We're in verse 6. That is irony. Irony is a figure of speech that means the opposite. It means like, there's a, this is a well-known one in America, break a leg. But nobody means break a leg. I mean, go do what you're supposed to do. This is, this is irony. There is absolutely not one bit of intention by Pilate for the Jews to perform a crucifixion of Jesus. That was impossible on all counts in every way. This is irony. I don't want to crucify him because he's an innocent man. That's what Pilate is saying. I'm not going to kill an innocent man. You kill an innocent man. I'm not going to do it. I am not going to stain my office of governor here by killing an innocent man. You take him and crucify him. The words are not, the first half of the words are not meant intentionally, positively. They're meant the opposite of that. 
because Pilate couldn't turn a crucifixion over to them. The Jews didn't crucify in any circumstances, and they weren't going to do it. And the Jews perfectly understood that Pilate meant it ironically by their response. They did not say crucifixion is a form of capital punishment of the Romans. We can't do it. We stone our criminals. We can't do it. There was nothing like that at all because the Jews understood the irony of Pilate, though most Bible readers can't figure out irony when they read it. But it's irony because the argument is this. And if you look at the second half of verse 6, you can see it. Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The whole issue is he's innocent. You kill him. I'm not going to kill him. He's an innocent man. This is how, does the Bible tell us uh, by, the, by the inspired apostles later that Pilate was determined to let him go? Does the Bible tell us that? He is going to be pushed in a way that they're going to get their wish. Did you hear that gospel account that said Jesus was delivered to their will? What was their will? Crucify him. This is my Lord. We're going to remember him the way he wants to be remembered in, in just a little while. I love this Lord Jesus Christ. And we are given in John's gospel more of the details of Pilate's words than anywhere else in the Bible. And that's why we're going over them right now. And I want you to understand verse 6. Pilate, Pilate wasn't actually instructing them <laughs> to, to crucify Jesus. The Jews didn't crucify. That was the Romans' responsibility. He was saying, I'm not going to kill an innocent man. It's irony. He's innocent. And the Jews understood him that way because they came back with not... We stone, we don't crucify. They came back with, we have a law. And it's, we're up to verse 7 now. We have a law, and by our law, he ought to die. So your idea that he's innocent is wrong because our law says that he ought to die. There is no confusion of the Jews thinking that Pilate meant they should grab a hold of Jesus and lead him out and crucify him. That wasn't the issue. Okay, I hope you see that. I know irony sometimes can be a little tricky. Sons, I hope that you can remember some irony. Dad, can I take the car out? Oh, some of you wouldn't be able to handle what I said. I'll just leave that alone. Some of you don't understand irony. I'll just leave that. Irony's beautiful. It really is. It's powerful. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So they bring up their law of blasphemy, which did have capital punishment attached to it, so he ought to die. And that is their answer to Pilate's statement in verse 6, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. I'm not going to kill him. He's an innocent man. You kill him. And they didn't, they didn't argue about the form of death. I know I'm repeating myself. I, I don't want you to read this passage and think, what did Pilate mean? And I hope you understood the words, Behold the man. Look at the man. Look at what, he wasn't preaching a gospel message. Pilate wasn't just about to be converted and behold, the Messiah. No, he wasn't saying that. He was saying, look what I've done to him. I want you to understand what's going on here. He's trying to release him by punishing him severely in order to satisfy the Jews, but it's not enough. They're still screaming, crucify him. And, he's, and so Pilate responds by saying, I'm not going to kill an innocent man. You kill him. He's innocent. We have a law, and by our law, he's guilty of a capital offense. He deserves to die. So we come to verse 8. Verses 8 through 11. When Pilate, therefore, 
heard that saying, oh, Lord, he was the more afraid and went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, whence art thou? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, speakest, not un speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Amen. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Amen. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, what saying did he hear? That the Jews said, Jesus said that he was the Son of God. Oh, brethren, this is what I mean by moments of truth. It was right there for the taking by faith. But he didn't have a heart for it. So when Pilate asked Jesus, Whence art thou? No answer. If you do not respond to the true offers of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, it can be withdrawn from you and you don't get anything. I want this church, I want each of you, every moment of truth God gives you to embrace it and believe it and put it into practice. Because if you don't, he can be silent as he was to Pilate. When Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He was afraid of killing an innocent man. He knew Jesus was innocent. The Bible tells us that. He said three times, I find no fault in him at all. And Jesus and Pilate knew that Jesus had been delivered because of the envy of the Jews for the success of his ministry and for exposing their sins. Pilate understood all that. You know, it's commendable. This is just a little short rabbit. Pilate was a Roman. Pilate was a pagan. Pilate gave the orders for our Lord Jesus Christ to be killed. But I still want you to recognize that when God raises up men and puts them in office, they have a different kind of a conscience than other, than other men. Mm -hmm. Not always, but the general rule is true. Notice this man's conscience. He was not like Herod. He was different. He was trying to release the Lord Jesus Christ by every way that he could think of being pressed very early in the morning with the matter. He's trying. And when it says he was more afraid, what would make a man afraid? The conscience that God puts in rulers. Especially when they know that a man's being delivered out of envy and he's got no faults with him and he sends him to a, another, the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod, and there was no fault found in him. And so he's trying, and so he's, he's afraid of killing an innocent man. That's why he said, you go ahead and take him and crucify him. There's no, I find no fault in him. I'm not going to be guilty of killing an innocent man. But Jesus wouldn't answer him. Whence art thou? Verse 9. Pilate went back into the judgment hall with the Lord Jesus Christ and said to him, Whence art thou? You know, he has just heard Jesus might be the Son of God. Where did you come from? Whence? Where'd you come from? Where? Whence art thou? You've told me you're a king. You've told me you have a kingdom that's not like my kingdom or Caesar's kingdom. Where'd you come from? Good question. 
But Pilate's sincerity and courage were not enough to warrant an answer. Think about that. Do not think that you deserve answers or help or blessings when your heart is divided. Does everyone hear me? Ministers make this decision every single day. Who deserves an answer and who does not deserve an answer? Every single day. Taught in the three pastoral epistles, all three of them. And Jesus practiced what he had Paul teach his ministers in those pastoral epistles. Whence art thou? Jesus could have preached him quite a sermon. Mm -hmm. I think we read that in John 10 and in other places, you know, that I came down from heaven to do my father's will and I was virgin born to a woman named Mary. And you can look up the records and find it to be true. And there's family members that would testify. None of that. Every time we get together and meet, it's not to go through a routine. It's not to satisfy a calendar. It's to have our moments of truth with the Lord. And he's showing us his son in John 19. And I want all of you to believe that he is the son of God. And as we have read and as we had prayed by my father this morning, I hope that we will submit everything in our lives to the will of the son of God. That shows that we really believe he is the son of God. This is a terrible situation right here in verse 9. Whence art thou? Whence art thou? Are you, are you the Son of God? Tell me. Jesus gave him no answer. I don't want to beat this particular point beyond death. I want to beat it to death. When you say no to anything from God, and you're, you're divided in your heart, you love the things of this world, you love your sin, eh, I love the Lord too, yes. I believe that God is Jehovah. I believe that Jesus is his son, but you don't live like it. God is not going to give you the truth of his word, nor the blessings of his Holy Spirit, nor power and conviction to do what you ought to do. He's going to withdraw himself from you and just be silent. And as a warning to every single one of us, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. Because he that hath to him shall be more given. And he that hath not shall be taken from him, even that which he thinketh he hath. That is the rule of the king I serve. Verse 10, Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? See, he's he's manifesting his colors, his true colors. Jesus showed us in verse 9 that he knew his heart. In verse 10, we get a picture of that heart that he's pretty convinced that he's got a pretty powerful position, which is okay. That's normal for rulers. Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Don't you know who's in charge of this sitting right now? Don't you know who's in charge of this discussion? Don't you know the risk that you're at if you continue to offend me by not answering me? Don't you know that I've been trying to release you? Don't you know that if I say the word yes, my centurions are going to grab you and haul you out to Golgotha 650 yards away and crucify you? Pilate, like most civil rulers, thought his office had no superior or limitation in Israel. There's an expression, and it's it's often abused. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. 
it's usually abused because most power doesn't corrupt. If, if power corrupts, then every father in here is a corrupt father. So don't press that very far. Uh, that's, you know, that, that little expression was coined by those that hate government and despise government. So just be careful with it. There is a point that it's true, but it's, a, it's the smaller, it's a minority of the cases, not the majority, or everyone in authority is corrupt because they have some power. And that's not true. And so Pilate here is exercising proper authority. I control this trial because from his mind, he thought that he did. But from the mind of God, he didn't. And the lesson that comes from the Lord Jesus in verse 11 is not a lesson about civil authority. It is a lesson about the crucifixion. And there's a difference as you read verse 11. I would exhort you to read verse 11, not thinking about it as this is a lesson that I should apply to our government, every government. No, it's a lesson about this particular case. Yes, there is a general lesson there about authority. Verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that, hath de- he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And that was not, Pilate, I know that you have authority from Caesar because you've been appointed the prefect in Palestine, but God gave you that prefect to it. No, that's not the point. The point is, God has given you a very unique role in my life and death. And he is in charge of this whole thing. He from above has given you authority over me at this time. Or I could call 12 legions of angels. I've already asked him if we could be released from this trial, if there might be another way. And he told me in the Garden of Gethsemane three times there wasn't another way. And so I want to help you understand verse 11. Jesus didn't jump off track, run off into the woods and swamp of misunderstanding and start to teach some lesson about civil authority. We know that rulers are appointed by God from other places in the Bible, but I want to point out that this is a unique situation right here. And that the Son of God, the darling of heaven, is under Pilate's authority no, and Jesus already knowing that the Jews are going to win over Pilate and crucify him because it's the plan of God. In verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. And that's not his prefecthood. That's this unique case. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Because of this unique case, that I'm in your hands right now for life or death, put someone else at greater fault than you in this unique case. It's Caiaphas that betrayed me from my nation into your hands. And that's verse 11 of John 19. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell us about this this kind of conversation between Jesus and Pilate. But we've had John 18 that had one trial before Pilate, and then we had Herod, and then we have this one as well. And this comes after Pilate chastised him, which is very different from the other gospel accounts. John is giving us a lot more detail, and we thank the Lord for John in this particular matter and how he presented the truth of the trial here before Pilate. What effect did Jesus' response have? Pilate, you're worried that I might be the Son of God. 
you know I'm innocent, and you've told the Jews that three times. But you just heard that I might be the Son of God. That's caused you some fear. You've asked me where I came from, and I didn't answer you. You've told me that you have the power, and you're controlling this situation. No, you're not. Where I came from is controlling the situation. You were given this power from above over me right now because the powers of above have put me in your hands right now. And me being in your hands is a result of Caiaphas, so he is guilty of the greater sin in the matter by giving me into your hands because you'll be the executioner of my crucifixion. Right. Notice what it says in verse 12. We're ending right now because verse 12 is for when we come back from our break. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Did Pilate understand what I just said to you? Pilate understood what I just said to you. But he is going to be pressed with losing his career and his professional trajectory and maybe his life by what the slander that the Jews are going to bring against him if he lets a man that has said he was a king go. And so that will be verses 12 through 16. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can see Pilate's straining conscience, but he wasn't a child of God. He wasn't saved. He wasn't born again. He's wicked hands. He crucified the Lord. He's in Psalm 2 because Acts chapter 4 in the prayer of the apostles put him in Psalm 2. He's condemned in the Bible and Jesus had a good confession before him and you, we get to see it in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not give us the confession of Jesus Christ before Pilate. Jesus' words here were very good. Note, notice that in verse 12, Pilate didn't respond by being offended that what Jesus had just said was, you don't really have any power. Are you following me? Yes. If verse 11 is, you don't really have any power, he would, have, he would have wanted to prove that he had power by crucifying Jesus in verse 12. But no, he tries to release him because he understands to some point. This is important for us to remember about total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean you can't think. Total depravity doesn't mean that you can't figure some things out. Total depravity doesn't mean that you can be a creationist. You can be a creationist and be totally depraved and on your way to hell. How do I know that? Psalm 19, 1 through 6 and Romans 1, 18 through 32. It says it over and over, that they understood the truth of God. They understood it clearly. It was manifest to them. But then when they hear from that God that created all things, when they know that there has to be a supreme being that created things, when that being tells them that they can't live a certain way that they want to, <laughs> they harden their hearts and turn against him. And that's the issue. And here Pilate is having these different inputs, and they are numerous. Herod found no fault. He found no fault three times. His wife told him, I've had a dream about this man. Jesus said, yes, I am a king, and I have a kingdom. And he hears that he is the son of God. He has all these inputs. And from thenceforth, he wanted to release him. But I'm going to tell you, if you're not born again and saved, and if you're not going to humble yourself to the truth God gives you, you'll crucify him one minute later. And he's going to crucify him one minute later. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. And may he bless us to humble ourselves in every moment of truth that he gives us. And we just had one.